This is The Guardian. Brought to you by Lexus. Some things do more than their stated functions. Because exceptional things inspire you to do exceptional things. To this select list, we add the all-new Lexus GX. With its exceptional capability, you'll see possibilities you never knew existed, sending you far outside your comfort zone. But as much as the GX challenges you, it also spoils you. Its intuitive technology and luxurious features mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to it. The all-new Lexus GX. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. On Tuesday, the US became the first country in the world to announce a ban on anti-satellite missile tests. And today, on behalf of the United States of America, I call on all nations to join us. The aim, according to Vice President Kamala Harris, is to help protect Earth's orbits. When China and Russia destroyed their respective satellites, it generated thousands of pieces of debris. Debris that will now orbit our Earth for years, if not decades. The more we venture into space and depend on satellites up there for scientific monitoring, weather reports, GPS, our mobile phones and internet, the more cluttered Earth's orbits are becoming. They are littered with old satellites, spent rocket bodies, and millions of tiny pieces of space hardware, even tools astronauts have dropped during spacewalks. And, as you can imagine, obliterating old satellites with missiles doesn't exactly help. The US has condemned Russia for conducting a dangerous and irresponsible missile test that it says endangered the crew aboard the International Space Station. So is the US announcement the beginning of us behaving more responsibly and sustainably in space? Or, just like our bad habits back here on Earth, are we risking our future off-planet too? I'm Ian Sample, The Guardian's science editor, and this is Science Weekly. Don Palacco, you're a professor of astrophysics and head of the Centre of Space Domain Awareness at the University of Warwick. And so one of your big interests is this growing issue of space debris. How bad is it really, the whole space debris problem? Well, there are already some orbits that have a significant risk of collision. But I think the real thing about this is that for many years, we have just ignored the problem. Only uh, material in the lowest orbits, deorbits, 
into the Earth's atmosphere, but the rest of it just stays there. And the problem is it's moving around at such high speeds, if it crashes into anything else, it produces more debris. Now, just to get this into a context, an object the size of a pea contains enough energy at the speeds they're moving at to totally disable a spacecraft. And can you give us a sense of how much stuff is up there and where all this junk is coming from? There's possibly a million pieces of junk bigger than a centimetre. One of the problems that we've had historically is that we've just tended to see space as infinite. And so we've just dumped spacecraft in space when they become old and unusable. And if they're high enough in orbit, they don't disappear. They just stay there. As they get older, they fall apart. They're sitting in a radiation field from the sun that actively is pretty hostile to them, and so they decay. And it must be difficult to track all these tens of thousands, potentially millions bits of junk. How's it done? Right now, we track maybe about 25,000 pieces of junk. And this is really quite big stuff, like old defunct spacecraft. But even with those objects... One of the problems is if they're low enough, then they're acted on by the Earth's atmosphere, so their orbits are changing. So that means that if you don't observe something for a few days, weeks, you may not find it at the place you expect it to be. For the smaller debris, we generally don't track it at all. And it's only really by the luck of God that we haven't um, had uh, more issues. I wonder if you can give us a sense of some of the sort of challenges facing us then in monitoring this increasing amount of debris. For most of these objects, we only know where it is to about 10 kilometres. And so you can imagine that if you get a collision alert, historically, many operators have ignored them. You're going to play poker with your $100 million spacecraft where you think the likelihood of a collision is very small. That led in 2009 to the collision of an Iridium satellite, which was operational, against the defunct Russian military satellite. U.S. and Russian officials tell us Tuesday's incident, the largest accidental collision ever, took place about 500 miles above Siberia and produced two large clouds of debris. The other issue, of course, is that the orbits are changing because the atmospheric drag also means that recovering objects is very difficult. And then ultimately, there's even a bigger problem, and that will be How do you keep a catalogue of a million objects up to date? We've talked a lot about tracking and trying to improve our sort of awareness of what's up there and where it is. But what are some of the approaches that people are looking at for trying to bring down some of this stuff? There's been a few demonstration missions so far, and they do things like fire nets over the defunct spacecraft. And then they can deorbit the spacecraft that fired the net, and that pulls down the other. They do things like fire harpoons and some of the newer companies that build spacecraft put magnetic latches on their spacecraft so they can be latched onto by future deorbiting spacecraft. For spacecraft that are further away in say geostationary orbits they're producing rendezvous spacecraft that carry resources that can extend its life and when they're finished we push them out from geostationary orbit they're still there but they're further away.
So the problem of space junk isn't going away. If anything, it's getting worse. And whilst there are efforts to remove some of this stuff from orbit, if something the size of a pea can disable a satellite, we need to do a lot more to prevent debris accumulating in the first place. So, what can be done? To hear more, I called on Chris Newman, Professor of Space Law and Policy at Northumbria University. I started by asking him about the recent US decision to ban anti-satellite missile tests. I think it's a really powerful statement by the leader of space activity internationally, saying we're not going to do this, and if you're our ally, we would say that you shouldn't do it either. So there's the first thing. It's it's taking, if you like, the moral high ground. It's looking to shape behaviour. I think also more cynically, you could argue, well, actually, this type of test isn't there you know, main counter space activity anyway. It's not the main way that they would disable satellites. There are non-kinetic ways, cyber attacks that can be used if they want to disable satellites. And we know when it comes to space debris that these kinds of anti-satellite missile tests aren't the only issue by a, a long shot. You know, we've got private companies like SpaceX and OneWeb putting up mega constellations of satellites where you have like, you know, potentially thousands of satellites working in concert up there. Those eventually presumably will become space junk. I mean, are companies like that or nations putting up constellations like that, are they beholden to any rules or laws about what they can and can't do to prevent littering these orbits? The way in which space activity is regulated internationally is by means of an international treaty we call the Outer Space Treaty. This was written and signed in 1967, and it reflects very much the sort of the, the security concerns at the time. The big ticket item in, in 1967 was the prevention of stationing of nuclear weapons in outer space. It doesn't make any specific mention about space debris. So what we've got instead are a series of, of guidelines that were developed in the early part of the 21st century to prevent more debris going into the Earth's orbit. Give us a flavour of these guidelines, Chris. What sort of things do they recommend nations and companies do? They invite regulators to almost try and eliminate the causes of debris right from the start of the mission. So dealing with, for example, um, excess fuel that might remain in a satellite at the end of its life, that type of thing can explode and cause a satellite to explode. Also, the recommendation that after the satellite reaches the end of its natural life, it should re-enter the Earth's atmosphere and burn up within 25 years. So there's a range of recommendations that these guidelines suggest to national regulators. National regulators can then make them part of a, a licensing requirement. We know that space agencies like NASA and the European Space Agency are looking at ways of trying to bring down some of the debris that's already up there. But some of these satellites and old rocket bodies, I mean, they're owned by, you know, other nations, other companies and so on. What are the issues that are going to have to be dealt with if we're going to bring down some of that debris that is actually still going to be a problem for many years if we don't do something about it? One of the real problems we have with this so-called active debris removal is the spectre of liability for, for space activity laying with the launching state. So, for example, a country authorises a debris removal mission. That debris removal mission goes wrong and it causes 
a fragmentation of a satellite which causes a cascade and causes a lot of damage. The launching state is going to be liable for that damage caused. And as we know, experimental space operations, they, they have the potential to go wrong. There's a question as well about the cost of it. Who's going to pay for the removal of this? This is not free. Should it be the polluter that pays? Well, that would put a huge burden on active space powers, and they're the ones likely to resist this. We've seen the US take this step on banning the anti-satellite missile test, but what would you really like to see done, Chris, to try and make a real impact on space debris? First, I think we should all welcome the US decision to do this. Anything that reduces international tension and reduces the risk of debris should be welcomed. But I would actually go back a stage. If we're going to start talking about enforcement, if we're going to start uh, naming and shaming bad actors in space, then we really need to understand the space environment. Once we get a picture of what's going on up there, once we can get custody of all of the objects, then we can start to really put in place governance measures that allow for the management or for the coordination of this space traffic. Is there a danger, you think, that if we don't get a handle on this, some of these orbits, low Earth orbit in particular, are going to just become unusable. I think the real danger is not only in not recognising the fact that we've got a problem, but also we're now looking to talk about putting humans on the moon. If we start replicating the behaviours in a, in a lunar context that we've shown in Earth orbit, we're going to go out and start contaminating other celestial bodies as well. I think it's an attitudinal and a behavioural piece that shapes the way in which humans do business in outer space. I think it's that fundamental. Chris, huge thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much indeed for having me. Thanks again to Chris Newman and, of course, to Don Polacco. We've put links to our coverage of Space Debris on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. The producers were Madeleine Finlay and Anand Jacketeer. The sound design was by Tony Onachuku, and the executive producer was Danielle Stevens. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. This is The Guardian. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson, Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by Lexus. Some things do more than their stated functions because exceptional things inspire you to do exceptional things. To this select list, we add the all-new Lexus GX. With its exceptional capability, you'll see possibilities you never knew existed, sending you far outside your comfort zone. But as much as the GX challenges you, it also spoils you. Its intuitive technology and luxurious features mean that wherever you go, you'll never
you'll never go without. Live up to it. The all-new Lexus GX. 